This week, Second Circuit takes on appeal of Purdue third-party releases defeat. Moby SPA fights to keep litigating in New York State court. And projected Fed rate increase sparks LBO backing leverage loan deals. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. For this week's Deep Dive, America's Core Credit by Reorg Legal Analyst Sean Daly joins us to discuss some recent developments in the Grupo Era Mexico and Latin bankruptcies that question the viability of certain types of bankruptcy lockup and voting agreements. It's Friday, January 28th. On Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit accepted the appeal of U.S. District Judge Colleen McMahon's December 16, 2021 decision, which vacated Purdue Farmer's confirmation order and validated the third-party release to the Sackler family. The Second Circuit set an expediting briefing schedule and stated that oral arguments will be set for the week of April 25, 2022, or as soon thereafter as practicable. The Second Circuit's order comes six weeks after Judge Colleen McMahon's surprise decision that upended the Purdue Farmer cases. The plan supporters, who argue that the third-party release for the Sacklers is a key to unlocking billions of dollars of funds for opioid crisis victims, filed petitions in mid-January asking the Circuit Court to review the ruling. California and two other states who objected to plan confirmation filed oppositions, asserting that a Second Circuit appeal would not end all litigation of the Sackler releases. The three states argued that the parties should focus on negotiating a modified plan instead of pursuing a further appeal. In Thursday's order, the Second Circuit adopted the approach advocated by several of the creditor groups who filed petitions seeking review. The court signaled that it will consider all issues relating to the bankruptcy court's authority to approve non-consensual third-party releases, not just the issues decided in Judge McMahon's opinion. In its December ruling, the district court focused on the bankruptcy court's statutory authority and constitutional authority under the Supreme Court's 2011 Stern v. Marshall opinion to approve such releases, but did not decide a host of other issues raised by parties challenging the Sackler release. This week saw the launch of several multi-billion dollar loan deals backing leveraged buyouts as the Federal Reserve signaled at Wednesday's meeting that it's likely to raise its benchmark rate at its March meeting. The prospect of higher interest rates, with some market participants expecting at least four increases this year, has stoked demand for floating rate paper. The S&P LSTA leveraged loan price index closed at 99.07 Wednesday, the highest level in 15 years. McAfee, the provider of consumer digital protection software founded by the late John McAfee launched on Monday a $4.41 billion and a $1.25 billion euro-equivalent seven-year term loan bees to support its acquisition by a group including Avent International, Premier Advisors, Crosspoint Capital, and Canada Pension Plan Investment. The term loans are part of a $14 billion package that also includes unsecured debt, $800 million preferred equity, and $5.2 billion of new sponsor equity, according to a lender presentation reviewed by Reorg. Brookrunners for the syndication of Athena House Leverage Buyout Financing reduced the size of high, the high-yield bond offering by $150 million to $2.35 billion from $2.5 billion originally, while upsizing the $5.75 billion term loan B by the corresponding amount to $5.9 billion from $5.75 billion originally, sources said. Syndication of the term loan B has been met with positive reaction from investors who cited huge market demand for new loan paper and the company's dominant position in the ambulatory market, sources told Reorg. Sources also noted the company's offering of eight-year senior secured notes is oversubscribed ahead of the commitment deadline, with the book now said to be over $3 billion for the $2.5 billion offering. The business has posted solid growth and has good free cash flow, earning a percentage of its revenue from a medical practitioner's appointments rather than simply a software licensing fee, they noted. The note's priced on Thursday with a coupon of 6.5%. 
Scientific Games Lottery marketed a 1.77 billion U.S. dollar tranche and a euro equivalent tranche of 750 million in seven-year Covenant Light term loans to support its acquisition by Brookfield Capital. On Wednesday, the issuer floated price stock of Sofer plus 375 to 400 basis points and Eurobor plus 425 basis points for the euro portion. The financing includes a 440 million five-year revolver with 0% floor and 50 bips of unused fees. In addition to the cross-border loan, Scientific Games Lottery will also raise $880 million in senior unsecured debt, while Brookfield will contribute $2.5 billion cash equity, representing a 42%, 42% equity cushion on a pro forma basis. On Tuesday, Moby SPA urged the New York Supreme Court to deny a motion to dismiss, filed by two Morgan Stanley entities and Morgan Stanley International employee Massimo Piazzi, urging that it had adequately pleaded a tortious interference cause of action. In September 2021, Moby sued dissenting bondholder Antonello DiMeo, the Morgan Stanley entities, Piazzi, and fellow Morgan Stanley International employee Dove Hillel Drazen in the Southern District of New York Federal Court for, quote, attempting to illegally acquire control of the Italian ferry company in its Italian Concordata restructuring proceeding by purchasing a controlling stake in Moby's bonds at a substantial discount using inside information. On October 14, 2021, Moby voluntarily dismissed the federal court action and refiled in New York State Court after U.S. District Judge Gregory Woods granted the defendant's permission to seek dismissal. The state court motion to dismiss indicated DeMeo and Drazen did not seek to dismiss the state court case because they have not been served a process outside the U.S. The Morgan Stanley entities and Piazzi filed their state court motion to dismiss on December 18th, arguing that the court lacks jurisdiction to hear the claim and that Moby's suit is fundamentally flawed because there's nothing improper or tortious about creditors exploring and negotiating their options in connection with a corporate restructuring. In its response, Moby argues that despite the defendant's assertion that the claim is entirely speculative and dependent on the occurrence of future events, the dispute is right because defendants' wrongful actions have already resulted in the exact harm intended, which among other things has included prolonging Moby's restructuring and dramatically increasing its costs. Moby argues that the New York Supreme Court has personal jurisdiction over Piazzi because the state's long-arm statute confers jurisdiction due to Piazzi's residence and employment in New York during the conspiracy, as well as actions taken by his co-conspirators in New York. Moby claims that because it has established its minimum contacts, in part because Piazzi lived in New York during the time the interference with Moby's creditors allegedly occurred, the burden must fall on Piazzi to establish a compelling case that would render jurisdiction unreasonable. With respect to the defendant's arguments under the doctrine of forum nonconvenience, which looks to whether another court, in this case in Milan, is a more appropriate venue for the litigation, Moby asserts that even though Piazzi, Drazen, and DeMeo all currently reside outside the United States, they filed a lawsuit in New York because the Morgan Stanley entities are based there. The defendant's scheme was substantially carried out in New York, and that the notes involved are governed by New York law. Top bread stories this week included... DBMP asbestos claimant sue San Goban management alleging Texas two-step strategy validated fiduciary duties to creditors seek to avoid Texas divisional merger as fraudulent transfer. Asana retail debtors to seek okay for plan modifications and March 3rd reconfirmation continue to discuss relief with key parties. Cedral new finance prepackaged plan goes effective Jan 20th, bringing broader Cedral group restructuring closer to completion. Diamond Sports recapitalization proposal would eliminate flexibility under capital structure, could require a make redemption of 12.75% secured notes. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. 
Hello, everyone. It will be another busy week as we close out January and enter the month of February. On Monday, January 31st, the hearing on competing motions for summary judgment will kick off in the Brazos adversary proceeding to reduce the $1.9 billion proof of claim filed by the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, otherwise known as ERCOT. Purdue Pharma has a hearing on Tuesday, February 1st, when the debtors will seek an extension of the litigation injunction through February 17th to facilitate ongoing mediation between the Sacklet parties and states appealing the plan confirmation order. Wednesday, February 2nd, we'll see a slate of hearings in the core group banking cases. The debtors will seek a disclosure statement approval and extension of their exclusivity periods over objections filed by the UCC. The UCC will seek to terminate the debtors' exclusivity periods at the same time. Johnson & Johnson subsidiary LTL Management also has a Wednesday hearing to seek extension of its exclusivity periods. Also scheduled for Wednesday, February 2nd, are motions to dismiss Just Energy Group's adversary complaint seeking to recover at least $274 million out of $355 million that ERCOT invoiced in connection with Winter Storm Uri about a year ago. Getting to Thursday, February 3rd, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will hear oral arguments in the consolidated appeals of the Ultra Petroleum Plan Confirmation Order. That order authorized the debtors to reject their gas transportation agreement with Rockies Express Pipeline, a contract regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. At issue is whether the bankruptcy court had power to excuse the debtors' performance under the contract without a separate regulatory proceeding. Nordic Aviation Capital will also have a hearing on Thursday to get final approval of their $170 million dip facility. There is also a hearing on Thursday, February 3rd, in our opioid litigation coverage, specifically in the public nuisance action filed by the state of California, seeking up to $50 billion to remediate the effects of the opioid crisis from affiliates of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Endo Pharmaceuticals, AbbVie, and Johnson & Johnson. The state will seek to set aside a December 15th Orange County State Court judgment, finding that it had failed to prove its public nuisance claim. Earnings will be reported on Thursday, February 3rd for Lynette Company and Bristol Group, followed by Royal Caribbean on Friday, February 4th. That's it for me from Los Angeles, where this weekend's weather forecast is a comfortable 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, America's Core Credit by Reorg Legal Analyst Sean Daly joins us to discuss some recent developments in the Grupo Era Mexico and Latin bankruptcies that question the viability of certain types of bankruptcy lockup and voting agreements. It's Friday, January 28th. Welcome to another Deep Dive. Um, we've got Sean Daly, Legal Analyst at America's Core Credit by Reorg. Uh, welcome to the pod, Sean. Thanks, David. So, Sean, uh, I think you could tell you, you, I'm going to let you run with it. So what are we going to talk about today? So we're going to talk about whether a creditor who committed to support a plan pursuant to a, a claim settlement entered in the post petition yet prior to disclosure statement approval period can change their vote during the solicitation process, notwithstanding that prior commitment to vote to accept a future plan. And, and so, and why, why, would we care about that? Yeah, so it's it's come up a couple times recently in the the Grupo Era Mexico bankruptcy. Uh, Judge Shelley Chapman recently said no, uh, and then days later, the UCC in the Latam Airlines case made a similar argument in a uh, disclosure statement objection. That's a highly contested, ongoing case, um, and these are both Southern District of New York, so you know, common common place to file. Okay. Sounds interesting. So, uh, let's. Can you break it down for for the non bankruptcy lawyers in the audience? 
Yeah, sure. So the the debtors are trying to kill two birds with one stone. Essentially, they're they're trying to resolve allowed claim amounts as part of the uh, you know the claims reconciliation process you have to go through. And yeah, as long as you're there and negotiating, uh, you know this the sort of plan support covenant. I'll I'll try and stick to calling it. Everyone uses different terms, but just you know it's it's another thing you could put in an agreement uh, or like a settlement. So just a, a requirement that, all right, you know, whatever we've kind of, we've hashed out our differences, uh, you, you know, creditors is part of the the bargain and the, the deal here, you're going to commit to support a future plan. But the the rub is that if you don't have a, discl- a disclosure statement out there or a plan on file, you know, if, if you're um, in bankruptcy, but there's no, you know, there's no indication of, of what the debtor's eventual plan is going to look like. Um, you know, does does locking creditors into supporting a future plan violate the bankruptcy code? And the argument brought up by several um, objecting parties recently is that Section 1125B prohibits solicitation of acceptances on a plan prior to the approval of, uh, you know, a court-approved disclosure statement. Right. And you, and you said th- this is happening or has happened recently in, in two recent cases, Aeromexico and LATAM. Yeah, so Aeromexico is kind of the the leader here. Maybe we could go through that first. So the the facts in Aeromexico, and there's a lot, but I'll I'll try and stick to the highlights. So the the debtors reached, like we were just talking about, they they reached kind of global ish settlements, call it, with several of their unions in spring 2021. So among other terms, the parties settled on allowed claim amounts, and there's an obligation to support, uh, including to vote for a quote complying plan uh, and this is months before the the company um, had even started you know going through the the plan uh, formulation process and so th- this complying plan just had a, a definition that included among it a couple other protections uh, about allowance just a requirement that you know these settled claims allowed claims, be treated no less favorably than any other pre-petition general unsecured non-priority claims against the same debtor. Uh, and there was also in here, and this, this is important for sort of claims trading purposes, uh, provision that the agreement would be binding on transferees. So court approves the union settlements via an order in March or April, 2021. A few months later in August, uh, the fund Invictus Global Management buys certain of these claims that were subject to the order. And then between August and December, maybe July and December, that's kind of when the debtor's plan process, exit financing all heats up. Uh, Invictus kind of hops around. They're, they're part of a couple different groups that wound up becoming backstop parties in the final plan proposal that the, the debtors put before the court. Uh, but by the time that final proposal was out there and the debtors decided, okay, you know, this is the horse we're going with. Invictus had left sort of the, the backstop side and started advocating for a, a competing proposal. So in December, Invictus votes to reject the plan. And then the debtors, believing that that vote against the plan violates the plan support a covenant that, you know, would bind Invictus because it purchased these, you know, these claims that were originally held by a union, uh, the debtors file a motion to, you know, enforce the union claim settlement order and get Invictus's votes against the plan to be deemed votes to accept the plan. Um, 
And if that happened, it would flip that class where there were very few claims uh, from rejecting to accepting the plan, which would, um, based on how the other classes voted, it, it would essentially mean that the debtors would not have to put on a cram down case at confirmation. So, you know, su- super nice for multiple reasons here. If the debtors. That's why they entered. That, that's, why they nice. did the, that's why they did the plan support agreement. I mean. Right. Right. Yep. Um, so that, that motion to enforce that the, the debtors filed in December, that's, that's kind of why we're here talking today that, you know, the debtors argued, Hey, this agreement, you know, it's binding on transferees. There's a prior court order. End of story. And Invictus came back with a handful of arguments, um, some you know allegations that oh, this particular union of the settling unions may not have entirely understood what it was, you know, agreeing to. That the, the argument the parties wound up focusing on is whether you know, notwithstanding this agreement, uh, Invictus should nevertheless be allowed to change its vote on the uh, the, the theory we talked about earlier that post petition pre-disclosure statement approval voting lockups violate section 1125b uh, because it's you know an improper solicitation um what did the court hold yeah the, the court agreed with the debtors said the the prior order was enforceable and invictus's claim should be deemed to accept rather than reject the plan so nice nice big win for the debtors like less than a week before their confirmation hearing and what did, what was the court's reasoning getting there? Yeah, so if if you're familiar with the saying that hard facts can make bad law, uh, Judge Chapman's comments from the bench were grounded almost entirely in fact, and and we'll kind of get to why that you know is I, I don't know I don't think entirely compelling. I'll I'll put in the caveat. Judge Chapman said she would include rationale uh, for the decision in any forthcoming confirmation order. Uh, as, as we're sitting here recording on the 28th, that confirmation hearing is, is still contested and ongoing. Um, but, you know, with, with all due respect to the court, there's, there wasn't very much law in the, the reasons for the decision that have been articulated so far. So Judge Chapman kind of started and, you know, framed up Invictus's position relative to the greater case context. You know, oh, the debtors were struggling through COVID. Now they have a plan supported by approximately 86% of claims. Um, You know, quote, let's remember Invictus was part of the plan commitment party crowd until it wasn't, court said. Um, And then the court suggested that Invictus, quote, views itself as a disappointed bidder. And uh, it was using this objection as a tool, uh, quote, you're using this to get Invictus into a position to make certain arguments at confirmation. Chapman said to the parties, uh, quote, there seems to be no limit, no sense to what's the bigger picture here. Uh, all, all pretty damning stuff. Um, and there were, you know, the, the court suggested, hey, you know, this is kind of speculation, but certainly sounds like Invictus didn't do a sufficient amount of due diligence before purchasing the claim. You know, if, if you're going to complain about later, you should have taken that into consideration when you bought the claim. Um, the fact that the labor union from which Invictus had purchased the claim hadn't spoken up, the court said, you know, hey, they're not here. Um, and the court, this this was kind of a, an interesting one. So the, the court said, well, I haven't heard anything from the U.S. trustee. The U.S. trustee did not object on this improper solicitation theory. Um, which was funny because the representative for the UST spoke up and said, Hey, 
you know, sure, that's that's true. We didn't object, but quote, if we had been more attuned to that, we may have raised it. Uh, and then, you know, the court said, oh, no, 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 you know, don't worry. In the U.S. trustee, this this woman actually, you know, went on to say, yeah, no, listen, we were just buried reviewing other filings of the case. We simply didn't catch the issue. Uh, so, you know, for what it's worth on that point. And then this, so this issue about, you know, potentially improper solicitation, the UCC, credit to the Aeromexico UCC, they brought it up at a hearing on certain other claim settlements, uh, a November 16th hearing. And Chapman kind of went through similar-ish analysis there. You know, she said, hey, there's there's no sign. Uh, well, there are agreements like this all over the docket in this case. You know, there's some agreements with these support obligations. There's some without. Uh, I've been approving them all case. And, oh, by the way, I just, you know, on a pretty much blanket basis, um, you know, approve similar supplier settlements with, you know, similar plan support provisions in the Philippine Airlines bankruptcy. In uh, what's, what I thought was kind of interesting is that at the November hearing, counsel for the UCC, and then in January, counsel for Invictus, they tried to distinguish on the facts Philippine Airlines. Um, uh, yeah, so UCC counsel in, in November said, quote, the reason why in Philippine Airlines you have the program that you have is because all those parties agreed pre-petition with the full understanding of the deal and what their distribution was going to be. Whereas the concern in Air Mexico is that, you know, quote, parties are giving the debtor their vote pursuant to the complying plan provision without knowing what the deal is. Um, and, you know, the court essentially didn't, you know, didn't agree with or didn't engage with that distinction, which I, I think is, you know, is a pretty good one. Um, and at the January hearing, you know, the court kind of further went and said, you know, listen, Invictus's position here would suggest that, uh, you know, the entire program of similar agreements could be invalidated. So maybe a little bit of, you know, kind of CYA expediency, um, to, you know, maybe to, to speculate it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, long, long story short, the, the court just kind of focused on on the facts, you know, mentioned, hey, there's sophisticated counsel on on both sides here. These are all, you know, sophisticated parties. Uh, no harm, no foul, essentially. So what's what's next? So Invictus appealed the order and two points I, I think are interesting. So Reasoning by analogy to confirmation appeals, the, the classic way for the debtors, if they want to sidestep any meaningful substantive review or further process delay, is to just go effective as quickly as possible and then argue equitable mootness. You know, the, the point that the, the egg, the plan has already been scrambled and you can unscramble it now. So it doesn't matter um, when, when the appeal is, is heard, presumably later in time. But you know, wrinkle this time around, we're in the Southern District of New York, and there's now a very high profile set of rulings in the Purdue Pharma confirmation appeals from district court saying, whoa, you know, not too fast. We're not going to let you debtors go effective just to moot an appeal. So yeah, from Invictus's perspective, there's maybe a, a little bit better hook uh, than, than prior in time to, you know, keep the appeal alive, kind of say, hey, look at, you know, look at Purdue. Um, and then, this, you know, second point that's kind of interesting is, is people are always worrying about, 
well, how's, how's X judge going to rule on Y? Judge Chapman is retiring in June of this year. So I, you can debate how useful this ruling is. I mean, if her decision stands, it's, it's there for others to argue from. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a, a ton of other parties are going to be able to, to run to her in, in the future and make the same argument. Uh, and then, you know, unless this somehow gets up to the Second Circuit, and uh, affirmed on appeal there, it's, it wouldn't be strictly binding. Of course, it would be persuasive. But yeah, that's that's Aeromexico. So um, I think we have, I, I mean, that, that's pretty crazy. But I think we have time maybe to go through something. Another one that's kind of similar, like, like you said, um, Latum, right? Yeah, yep. So Judge Chabot, it's kind of funny on the, on the ruling, the court held this contested hearing on the Invictus motion and then said, you know, it was kind of frustrated Friday evening. Um, Judge Chapman right now is also mediating in, in Purdue Pharma. Uh, the court was like, uh, all right, listen, you know, whatever, heard your arguments. Let's get back together next week. Um, and so the first time publicly that it was announced, it wasn't that the court had already made a ruling. It was just the court intended to rule for Aeromexico against Invictus. And that, that came out during a, uh, pre-confirmation trial scheduling conference on January 20th. So uh, a mere five days later, the UCC in the LATAM Airlines case, where there's a, a massively contested disclosure statement hearing that started on January 27th and the UCC poses the plan, a bunch of other unsecured parties say, you know, not only are there adequate information issues, but, you know, this plan is patently unconfirmable. So it's the classic, you know, try and try and get as, as much substantive argument front-loaded as possible. Uh, but anyway, the, the UCC, they filed an objection. And then uh, five days after, you know, Judge Chapman intends, states an intent to rule for Aeromexico, they file a supplemental DS objection raising this 1120, section 1125 improper solicitation argument. And they work in a, a confirmation objection, which is just great. So they, you know, they kind of walk through it. Uh, all right, you've got violation here of, of 1125. Um, oh, and sorry to take one step back. I don't think I hit this. The, the committee says, oh, you know, we've got the supplemental objection. We're, we're kind of only learning that the debtors have been seeking and obtaining agreements from unsecured creditors to vote in favor of the plan in exchange for the debtors stipulating to, you know, an allowed amount of their, their various claims. So I say, you know, same argument as Aeromexico, UCC, this violates 1125. Uh, but then they go on to say, all right, it, now we're kind of talking about confirmation in this, this patently unconfirmable argument at the disclosure statement hearing. Well, 1129A2 prohibits confirmation if the plan uh, proponent has failed to comply with the bankruptcy code. So boom, kind of tying it back to, well, you're violating 1125 is, goes the argument. Uh, and then 1129A3 prohibits confirmation if the plan has been proposed in any manner forbidden by law. So, it, you know, it's a nice little way to say we've, we've got our theory for why you're violating the bankruptcy code and then to, uh, you know, kind of loop it into a confirmation objection. Um, but the, I guess maybe key points to note are that the UCC cites to um, two Delaware decisions from Judge Mary Walrath that the Aeromexico uh, Invictus and the UCC and Aeromexico also cited to. Um, 
And Chapman, you know, presented with those cases I, I mentioned earlier in Aramexico, it, at least what the court has said so far is, is all was kind of very fact-based as opposed to the law-based. When the objectors rate, you know, they said, hey, look at NRA stations holding and NII holdings. And all Chapman said was, you know, with all due respect to my, my esteemed colleague in, in Delaware, I, I don't find those cases persuasive. And then that was it, you know, no, no sort of explanation. Um, and then so, you know, so the LATAM debtors countered and they say, nope, you know, the UCC has got it wrong. Plan support provisions are, quote, routinely accepted. And what do they cite to? They cite to Aeromexico, Philippine Airlines, uh, to be fair, a few more cases as well. But, you know, both sides now, right, are, are kind of getting into this, this argument. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes in LATAM. And I guess maybe a final point on what I think is kind of interesting about LATAM is if, you know, as, as you're trying to either compare or contrast the agreements, uh, the, the forms of like settlement agreements, one of the distinctions the Aeromexico UCC drew between Philippine Airlines and Aeromexico, we just kind of talked about the, the difference in the, the case posture there. Um, but they also, and I, I believe Invictus Council also brought this up, in Philippine Airlines, the agreements between the debtors and creditors to support, like suppliers to support the plan, had numerous termination provisions, whereas uh, you know there were fewer or none in the agreements that were being proposed in Aeromexico. So the LATAM Airlines UCC objection attaches a quote claim allowance agreement. They say, oh, you know, this is the form the debtors have been sending out to creditors, um, and it's, so it's it's like a one page agreement it has only four substantive provisions that are you know one here's the allowed amount of your claim, two you agree to support the plan full stop. Three, this agreement is, is binding on claim transferees. And then four, there's just like a choice of law provision. So there's not even complying plan language like there was in Aeromexico, which, you know, you can counter, you can say, well, that's fine because LATAM already has a plan on file. You don't have quite the same concern that the plan isn't out there, uh, but there are no termination provisions here at all. So it'll, it'll be interesting depending on whether uh, Judge James Garrity and LATAM really gets into that, how granular the parties go. We could, you know, get um, either conflicting decisions out of the SDNY or two decisions right in a row that would be, you know, debtor friendly, credit or negative. Um, it's just kind of a, a a fun little little disagreement at the at the moment. Well, I mean, I mean, it's an interesting distinction, right? You have your full feature contract, right? Like any mm -hmm. other contract with your ins and outs and whatever. And then you and then, and then what you're describing is is a is an agreement where right your claim is allowed you're going to vote for the plan and uh, you know if if the deal right if it's 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 it doesn't sound like a sophisticated negotiation right because right, right like a real contract like most most real contracts are going to have right they're going to, they're going to build all kinds of um, contingencies in. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 is, is it ultimately going to turn on a matter of contract law or bankruptcy law? Yeah. I mean, you know? Yeah. And, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and the debt, so the, the LATAM debtors, when they reply to the UCC, they bring up one, one thing that the, the court also cited in Aramexco, Judge Chapman said, you know, listen, I have, uh, 
claim settlements on my docket that have this provision that don't. You know, it doesn't doesn't seem like the debtors were coercing anyone into it. And so it, the LATAM debtors in their response to the UCC, they say, uh, you know, where the relevant counterparty was willing to support the plan, the debtors included this provision. Uh, but then, you know, getting back to what you were just talking about, the, the debtors put in their in their brief, quote, for all the claims allowance agreements that have been executed, there never was and never has been any linkage or tie between the amount of the claim to be allowed and the relevant creditor's agreement to support the plan. They say, you know, instead, the amount of the claim was based solely on the debtor's view uh, with their advisor's input of the appropriate amount of the claim. Um, but there's a footnote, and this this is hilarious. This reads to me like a, a have your cake and eat it too footnote. Yeah. Um, quote, of course, it should not come as a surprise to any party, least of all the committee, that in connection with the allowance of a claim, the debtors want to ensure that they are doing everything possible to minimize further incurrence of professional fees and expenses by the debtors related to such a claim and thereby save the estate from needless expenditure of funds, which is a long, you know, pardon my French BS way to say, oh, as long as we were here, we tied in. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, the plan I, support. That's not, I don't, yeah, I don't, it's yeah. difficult to swallow. Um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, lock up agreements, my plan support agreements, they're so common, right? You know, you allow your, I mean, We'll allow your claim in this amount and, you know, you agree to vote for the plan, whatever. It's, it's just like, it ha- it's like, you know, it's like water or it's air, right? It happens in all the cases all the time. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's always, it, it's always a surprise to me, right? Where you have like someone challenges, like some basic fundamental thing. And all of a sudden everybody's like, how does this work again? <laughs> like how do we do bank how do we do bankruptcy what how do we bankruptcy again because it's like they've been doing it this way forever and they you know i guess they never stopped and thought about how like maybe that you know maybe this really does go against some of the you know the 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 tenants in the code that you know are are against uh, that work against certain types of solicitations but mm-hmm. but how do you but that's the thing is like how do you bankruptcy then if you can't do this right i mean yeah it's like it's one thing to talk like to talk about like in Purdue, right? Where you know you can you can go chicken little and say, well, you know, if if you know if third parties like can't get the releases that they were, you know, arguably not entitled to, you know, for many many years, they they weren't allowed. You know, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this stuff? It's not gonna work anymore. I mean that you know that's that's just not true. In a lot of cases, don't have those kind of releases, right? But right. but but this, right? This like thing that nobody pays attention to is so fundamental to making a plan work. You know, it's hard to believe that, like, you know, I, that, that 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 someone could pull the rug out. But you know what? Like that happened in Stern v. Marshall. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I you know when when that happened when that challenge happened, I don't think that anybody realized. You know, they were just like, oh. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the details of Stern, but right. You know, it's it's a counterclaim, right? You can't do the counterclaim. You know, nobody thought that it would literally almost undo the entire basis for bankruptcy. So, you know what I mean? Someone pulls yeah. on a thread and doesn't realize like what they're actually doing here. Yeah, uh, that's you know? yeah. No, that's that's a great point. That that came up in the era Mexico hearings. Oh, did, okay. Yeah, when people started distinguishing between, or you know, trying to say, well, the period of time in which we're really concerned is post petition. Pre-DS, you know, we're not worried about pre-petition agreements because you know you can get into assumption and, and rejection. Um, 
but the parties essentially, you know, they, they kind of not to say danced around it, but in the way you were just talking about, they're like, yeah, well, we do this a lot. It comes up a lot. Let's, let's just not look too hard at kind of the general principle and, and focus on this um, more narrow dispute. But uh, yeah. And, and the, you know, the Invictus appeal is outstanding. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see something there, but it, it could be, yeah, it could be a fun one to follow. Yeah. Let, let, let's see where it goes. I mean, I mean, who knows this one might, might end up at the Supreme court. Who knows? I, I, I kept saying like, I, I, I know when Anna Nicole Smith ended up, you know, in front of the Supreme court, you know, with, with her bankruptcy case, I don't think that anyone ever, anyone ever expected that. So who knows? Yeah. You know, Aeromexico may end up there. Well, Sean, yeah, it's really, really fascinating issue. And uh, thanks for coming on. And, you know, we're going to have, I, I'm sure we'll have you back, back here to talk about this, uh, you know, when, uh, when it wakes, makes its way through the appeals court, we'll see where it goes. Thanks, David. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to. So we'll uh, see you in the future. All right. Take care. Right. Thanks, Sean. Yep. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.